Today's final reading is from Psalms, chapter 73. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet have almost slipped. I have nearly lost my people, for I envied arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles, their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes liberty. The evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, the people turn to them and drink the waters with abundance. They say, How would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Surely, in vain I have kept my heart pure, and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply, till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors? They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. Where my heart was weak and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a fruit feast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. Afterward, you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth is nothing outside besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and a portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have mixed the sovereign law of my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. This is the word of God. Thank you for reading. And, uh, Good morning to everyone. My name is Peter. I'm again your substitute teacher today. Uh, he was out on the beach somewhere in Thailand enjoying himself along with Mary and the children. And for those of you who are parents, you think being on a beach with three children is enjoying yourself, then, well, you know, maybe you know something that I don't. Uh, so do pray for him that he'll come back singing and alive. Uh, despite the vacation, um, but uh, we, we are we do pray for him about this. Um, so we continue with our uh, our book or our series in, in Psalms and today, Psalm seventy-three. And uh, you know, Psalm seventy-three is about Asaph going through a lot of doubts, and and I'm wondering whether or not any one of you might have. Call myself going through some similar doubts, and, uh, you know, that you call yourself wanting someone else's life. Maybe it's not all the good stuff, not all the good, uh, bad stuff, but, but, but uh, some of the good stuff. 
and, and you know, wanting someone else's life because they have very great shapes or envious of their body or um, to see someone who's successful in everything that they do, which has a little bit of that success. Um, or you look at celebrities and wealthy people and think, well, why not me? Why not me? I work just as hard. Um, or how about this? This is maybe more to the heart. That um, when you look at someone at work, someone in the news, someone who's mean and selfish, immoral, unethical, doing all the wrong things, and yet their life seems to be just coming along. Nothing goes wrong for them. Everything goes right for them. They get richer. They get happier, they get healthier. They get more popular. How would you feel that? Maybe you would say to yourself that one day they will get theirs. But what if it doesn't happen? What if you watch them from afar and they continue to prosper despite everything that they do? How would you feel that? Where's the justice? Well, this is exactly what Asaph, the psalmist, is going through. And at some point in our lives, I think all of us would go through and experience something like this. This psalm was written by Asaph, who's, who also wrote 12 psalms in, uh, in, in, in total. And there's not a lot that we know about Asaph, other than he served under David and Solomon. Um, and David asked him often to lead worship and praise. So Asaph would have seen the best and the worst of human behavior during that time, being so close to the, to, the, to, the, to the throne. And in Psalm 73, Asaph basically writes about his struggles of injustice in life. Why bad people do not get punished, yet good people, people who are pure, continue to suffer. Or put it another way, he identifies the problem of death, which is still very, very relevant today. Now, what we'll do, so for the next 20 minutes or so, we'll look at the problem of doubt, what it is. And we'll also look at how Asaph faced it. And then finally, we'll also examine this approach and how we approached it by seeing the whole picture. Now, what Asaph was going through was a deep, deep sense of envy that caused him to doubt and lose his foothold. And you see this word foothold appear again later. In, in this chapter. And foothold here means um, your basis of faith. What you hold on to for your faith. Right? So Asaph is showing that he's losing his foothold when he's seeing all these things that are happening uh, where bad people and immoral people are going on, going about ignoring God, doing all the bad things, and yet nothing happens to them. And what is that? Envy is wanting someone else's life. Maybe you envy someone else's husband or wife. Not in a sexual way, but just in a She's much nicer than my wife, or this, this husband does more things than my husband. You always find fault in somebody. Or maybe we envy somebody's house. They live in such a nice neighborhood, me. Or we envy somebody's lifestyle. They need to travel business class and or we envy somebody's looks, they're intellect. Basically, it's, it's, it's the one thing that's missing in your life that will make your life perfect. The 
there's more to this phrase now. You look at verse 1 and verse 13, and it says, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who appear in heart. And then in verse 13, it says, Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. Asaph is saying that he's pure at heart, and yet he's going through suffering, he's going through uh, pain, and love others for wicked or prosper. And because of this, he nearly lost his foothold. Doubts are raising through his mind. How can God be good to me, who is pure at heart, and yet be good to those that are waiting? Now this doubt that Asaph is dealing with comes from two angles. It shows here, it comes from the fact that he's wondering why are wicked people not punished, but also why am I the pure suffering? We question God's judgment all the time. And we question the speed of God's judgment. When we look at people that are doing horrible things, we think, why can't God do something about it now? Not later, but now. But when we look at our own sins and the things that we do, the judgment that we deserve, we're quite happy for God to delay that judgment. Now this is a big problem that we face as Christians when we doubt God's justice Atheists have had a very successful to some extent, but standard argument about Christianity that says, well, God is either all powerful and not loving because he sees everything that's going on in this world and he's, he's not doing anything about it. He can, he's not. Or he's loving, but he's not all powerful. He sees all the horrible things happening in this world, he feels for it, but he can't do anything himself. It's a very powerful argument. The thing about doubt is that it is very murky. It's not so straightforward. And I think the first thing we need to clarify about doubt is that it starts with our own, our own point of reference, our own point of perspective. And our own point of reference is often shaped by our experience and by society. Now, right now I'm going to stop for a second and talk directly to the chief. Because in this service, the solid block of youth is here with us. And also, I know that as I look around, we see some other uh, uh, kids, or not kids, but, but students who come back to the university here with us. Right? And in a year or two, for those of you who have not gone to college, you're going to be away from your parents, you're going to be away from Shawnee Church, you're going to be away from your comfort zone. When you're away from this comfort zone, you meet new friends. New friends with different perspectives, different ways of seeing things. And when you meet these new friends, you're going to want them to like you. You're going to want to belong. So you're going to be eager to listen. You might be eager to agree and follow as well. Because who wants to be alone thousands of miles away from your family in college? You need friends. And when that happens, you're going to experience doubts. Doubts about your faith. But more precisely, doubts about your parents' faith. Because for some of you, your faith hasn't, hasn't materialized. It hasn't grown or matured. 
So therefore, it's very, very important for you to know how to deal with your status. Because it's going to come at you real hard. So I want you guys to pay attention today. Not look at your phone, not pick your nails, but pay attention. Because it's, this is as much a sermon for you as it is for all the programs today. And I was saying that that starts with us having a singular point of reference, one point of view. And this point of view is, is often a, a, a shared thought that we all have, a common thought that we all have. All have. And I'm going to oversimplify this. And it goes something like this. Good things should happen to good people, and bad things should happen to bad people. Not the other way around. And when this is not happening, that's the beginning of doubt of God. Our doubts of God. And this will sometimes lead us to a rabbit hole where we just keep going down at a rabbit hole of asking why, 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 why this, why that. Infinite why questions. Questions about God's motives. Questions about God's power, His character, His actions. But what if God's motives and His reason is beyond our ability to understand? Is that so far-fetched? That the God of creation, the creator of all things, that you know, do we really expect to, to understand everything that he does, why he does it? Is it plausible? Is it possible that there are some things that we just can't understand? And if we take this position that God is much smaller than I am, God is much wiser than I am, then maybe some of these white questions will get cut down. Now this is not about blind faith. This is not about closing your eyes and just say, I believe. No. This is not about giving up to finding the truth. I continue to look for the truth. But it's rather it's acknowledging that sometimes God is infinitely wiser, smarter, bigger than we are, holier than we are. So that it is reasonable to doubt, we to, to, to not understand everything that it does. Now doubts can happen to anyone. They can happen to you, me, pastors, parents, CEOs. It doesn't matter. It hits everybody. And here is that. It's showing doubt in verse 2 when he says it almost lost its football. Asaph's doubts were also reinforced by, by his experiences in verses 13 and 14 when he says he's afflicted with new punishments every morning. What Asaph is describing is happening to all of us. It's happening to, to us every day. It is almost unthinkable that there are some of us here in this room who never experience some level of doubt if we open our eyes and look at everything that's happening around this world. But having doubts is essential to learn. You don't learn about doubts. Francis Bacon is a 15th century English philosopher. He has a quote that I think applies very nicely. It says, If a man will begin with certainties, he shall end in doubts. But if he will be content to begin in doubts, he shall end in certainties. I think Francis Bacon is saying that doubts can be a course of learning and knowledge, of gaining all knowledge. Now this is certainly true in science. People who need where we are today 
if there were people who didn't have, who didn't have jobs, who just wouldn't be here, right? We would still think that Earth is flat. But people had doubts. They questioned. They looked. And then they found answers. And I think this is certainly uh, uh, something that is important for us to embark on. But, and, and that applies, not just in science, but also applies to spirituality. But I think it's also important to question, um, but, but it's, it, well, it's an important question, but it's equally important to do that with an open mind and with people of credibility. So look to who you question with. You're not going to find a lot of credible answers on TikTok or Instagram, I'm sorry, it's, you won't, right? You have to look at the background, the credibility of these people they are speaking to. Question Christianity with a group of atheists may bring a different perspective, and that's, that's not a bad thing. But that perspective needs to be countered with a session of Christians as well, so we get equal airtime. The doubts are also emotional. And sometimes it will make us wonder whether it is all worth it. Let's take ASAP example. Uh, he has a pure heart and yet all day long he's affected. He wakes up to new punishments. And even and ASAP even said he kept his heart pure in vain. In vain. Meaning, is it all worth it? What am I doing this for? And that's probably a cause for him to lose his football. So it's easier to tell God when you see bad people going punished, but man, it's, it's even easier when you start to look at all the good things that you're doing, that you're trying to please God, and yet you're the one that's being punished or suffering or anything. I've had quite a bulky 12 months. It started last year with my brother-in-law uh, dying of and then my sister, a few months later, died due to, due to uh, heart complications. And then after that, my, my brother was diagnosed with prostate cancer. Soon after that, I was taken off from my job. I still got two kids in college. Um, and then recently, I was told that I got a tumor by that age of getting Now, when you sit back and look at this, it's a lot. 12 months. But I hadn't noticed all of this. And those of you who've been around me, knows me, would know that, I, well, yeah, these things are happening, but life goes on. But it's not that simple. It's not just you take an approach that life goes on. Because I think at, at every moment of despair, and I did have that, I'm also reminded of the blessings in my life. I look at my wife, my two kids, I'm reminded of those blessings every single day. But most importantly, I'm reminded of the most important blessing, which is my relationship with God. That's the blessing that keeps me going. Lydia Brownback has heard a quote that I want to share with you. It says, if we get our eyes off, our, off of ourselves, our problems, our wants, and lacks, and off of what everyone else seems to have, we realize how blessed we really are just for having it. 
This is not some self-help tactic. Okay? Not, I'm not coming wrong this here, getting up here and telling you to just help yourself. And this is not some way of building good fortune upon yourself. When bad things happen, when despair happens, you should grieve. You should, you should be bad. You should face it because face these disappointments and fears. But to be fair, we should also give equal airtime to all the good things in our lives. Especially the ultimate good thing, our relationship with God. Grace that you face these doubts by going into the sanctuary. Now look at verse uh, 16 and 17 where it says, When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply until I entered the sanctuary of God. Until I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Now when we think of a sanctuary today, we might think of it someplace quiet, peaceful, right? Like an empty church. Well, that's not what Asaph meant. When Asaph was talking about the, the, the sanctuary, he meant the temple. That's what the sanctuary is, the temple. And back then, what did the people do at the temple? They worship. Right. What does that mean for us today? It means church. It means fellowship. Look, there, there's no replacement for church. There's no replacement for going to church, for worshiping God. And yes, sometimes you might think I can be at home, looking out the window, looking at the mountains, the beautiful scenery, be at peace with God. It's not the same thing. It's not the same thing. You need to hear God's word being preached. You need to hear praise and songs being sung to worship God. That's the temple. That's sanctuary. Now, not every church is the same, and, and not every church is right for you. You have to go out and find the right church for you, the right place. But do go and find it. And when you find it, make a commitment, be a member, go regular, make time to worship. If you're getting the every time in society and the environment around you, that doubts the existence and motivation of God, then should you be fair to give just as much time to worship and to hear what God has to say to you. Now what did Asaph find in the sanctuary? Well, he found perspective. He found meaning. It, it, he, he still didn't have an answer to all the questions of why. He didn't have an answer to that. But his fixation changed from self-interest self-pity to his relationship with God. He no longer looked at God as a matter of speculation. Do you exist? Are you there? But he instead looked at God in worship. And in doing so, he got a perspective that he came to understand the final destiny. Look at verses 17 and 18. It says, Till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground, and you cast them down to ruin. You see, now it's the wicked that are on slippery ground. It's the wicked that's losing their football. And Asaph saw that when, when the wicked placed their foundation, what they believed in, their faith, their wealth, 
outward beauty and success and fame, that they will be on slippery ground. Because these things that they place their foot on will crumble. It doesn't last. They will lose their footing. And once they start entered the sanctuary, he realized he was focusing on the wrong things. He was focusing on the consequences of sins in this world. Meaning, if someone was immoral and corrupt, they shouldn't have a good life. They should get punished. What he should be focusing on is the result of sin in God's judgment. And what is that result? The result is God's personal rejection, being dismissed by God. The wicked don't know this. They are oblivious. In fact, verse 20 says, There are like a dream of one waste. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. Their success will simply vanish, like a dream you wake up from. Now, this perspective that they set up, what is this perspective? Is it not a perspective that I can have is help many oppressed people throughout the history of time? Survive. One particular group of people, if you think about it, African Americans survived their experience of injustice because of this faith. I'm quoting Yolanda Pierce from Howard University. She says, But for vast numbers, both centuries ago and now, Christianity motivated and uplifted with the promise of heavenly rewards. Christianity brought enslaved Africans this powerful and profound sense of hope that Jesus would return. That there is a life in the world after this life. That what this is going on with the human being, or with the human body, the mortal realm, is just temporary. That there is eternity. That, that you will be rewarded. You will experience joy and peace and comfort. That this God is a God of transformation. I don't know if you can imagine what, what they went through for centuries. I can't. And I can't imagine the people, and we still have oppressed people today. I can't imagine the people going through their lives and getting up in the morning and engaging in life when they're oppressed in that way. But they did. And it was because of their faith. Now, being in sanctuary with a different perspective helped Asaph see that he was senseless and ignorant, a brute beast before God. And you look at verses 21 and 22. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Now, this may sound harsh, and, and perhaps some of you might even find it manipulative, like, why do you call me a brute beast? But isn't this how we behave in front of God when we don't get our way? Petulant, stomping our feet, complaining, wondering why, just like a brute beast. I want to share an illustration with you from Elizabeth Elliot. Elizabeth Elliot was a missionary whose husband was killed uh, by tribal people in Ecuador, where they were uh, in, in, in so they went on a mission trip there, and the husband got killed by the tribal people there. But she stayed. She stayed and ministered to this tribe for the next two years. 
And her illustration goes like this. She was visiting friends uh, in Wales, and, and her friends were disinfecting sheep. I don't know if you guys know what that looks like, but it looks something like this. Right? So sheep had parasites on them, and if you don't disinfect them, they will die. The parasites will eat them, eat them up, basically. So you have to disinfect them, and the old way of doing it, and some of them are still doing it the traditional way, is to dip them in the fat of disinfectant. Okay? And you can imagine the sheep are not happy. They're not like this. Right? They're being sunk in, drowned in this disinfectant. And I can imagine the sheep is screaming and yelling and kicking, but most importantly, I think the sheep is looking up to their shepherd and saying, what are you doing to me? What's going on here? What have I done to deserve this? I wonder how often we feel this way. Elizabeth Elliot had this to say about her experiences, which includes losing her second husband prematurely to cancer. Let me read your quote. I have had some experiences in my life which have made me feel very sympathetic to those poor sheep. There are times I couldn't figure out any reason for the treatment I was getting from my great shepherd whom I trusted. And like each sheep, I didn't have a hint of an explanation. There will be no intellectual satisfaction on this side of heaven to that age-old question, why? But although I have not found intellectual satisfaction, I have found peace. And the answer I say to you is not an explanation, but a person, Jesus Christ, my Lord, my God. It's He who was the Word before the foundation of the world, suffering as man slain. And he has a lot of the same that you and I haven't the slightest idea about. He told us enough so that we know that suffering is not for nothing. Like it's not easy living in this world. It's hard. We're either dealing with our own personal pain and suffering with fears and anxieties. Or we're looking around the world and we see even worse things happening around the world. But we have to find a way to hope, don't we? And it's a conscious choice. No one's going to force you to it. Door number one is to believe that there is no God. That everything that's happening around us today is random, cosmic randomness. I don't know about you, but to me that is utterly frightening. Scared me to death, would be pain in my hands. Door number two is to believe that there is a God and He has a plan for us. And it's a plan that we don't fully understand and will surely involve varying degrees of pain and suffering and disappointment in all those things. And here's what Asaph saw. After realizing that he was behaving like a saw the other side of things. He saw the comfort and the assurance of God. Let's look at verses 23, 24. It says, Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with counsel. And afterward, you will take me to glory. Well, what is this picture that Asaph saw? What is he looking at? It's a picture where God is the perfect judge. 
not you, not me, but God is a perfect judge. And he will judge the wicked in the Cessna, verses 19 and 20, and he will be faithful. I, I sincerely hope that we don't underestimate the presence of God, the comfort and the assurance that that presence brings. You look at verses 26 and 27. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are faithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be a God. How did Asaph know this? How did Asaph know this to be true? That this assures from God's judgment. I don't have an answer for that. It's a important question. I, the Bible doesn't tell us, the chapter doesn't tell us how he, how he got this perspective other than being in sanctuary. But I do know that we have a way now of knowing that these verses are true. We know this because of Jesus. Because of Jesus, because of the cross, we know God cares. Look, Jesus is the Son of God, and if He did indeed die on the cross, then we know God cares. It's as simple as that. We know that He is just. And if Asaph has this assurance without the benefit of Jesus, how much more should we be assured knowing who Jesus is and knowing what He did for us? Look, my friends, we've got, we've got lots of questions that cannot be answered about our faith, about God, about why things are in this world. I have a whole bunch of them. i got a long list that, by God's grace, if I ever get up to heaven, I'm going to be sitting down and saying, taking them off, saying, i I got questions for you, God. I need to know why this is happening, or why this happened, or why that happened. But right now, we don't have the answers. But I think... There is one question we do have, we do have an answer to, though. And that, that question is, does God love me? If you ever wonder that question, does God love me? There is an answer. And that answer is, is well, that question to that answer is in Jesus. It was answered definitively in Jesus. But there's a thing about God's love that I want to just say. If we go through life thinking that we have, we have a claim on God's love because of everything that we've done, we'll never be transformed. It doesn't work that way. If we think we deserve God's love because of all that we've done, because of my service in church, or I'm a good person, I'm moral, then when you hear someone tell you that God loves you, you're going to say, yeah, of course, sure. Sure he does. Why wouldn't you? I think he should love you a little bit more. But when we look at the cross, and we see that judgment that was nailed on the cross, and we know that it was nailed on the cross because out of love, out of forgiveness, then that, that love, God's love, will transform let me leave you with a story about Horatio Stafford. 
He was a very successful American lawyer back in the 19th century and was about to go on holiday for his family, wife and four, four daughters. The wife and four daughters went first, got on the boat, sailed to England. Somewhere in the middle of the Atlantic, the boat, the, the, the boat sank. 226 people died. When his wife reached the shores of England, she sent him a telegram with two words, saved alone. And when he went to meet his wife, uh, and he was crossing the Atlantic as well, he got to the spot where the ship had sunk and his daughters had died. He was inspired to write this very, very famous hymn, It is well with my soul. One part of the hymn says this, Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and shed his own blood for my soul. Friends, we have a choice to make here. We do. Many of you here, when you go to college, or those that are in college, you have a choice to make. You have to believe in God, that He is our Creator, our Father, our Lord. And if so, if you believe that, if you're making that choice, then you've got to go to the cross. You've got to go to the cross to face the hope of Jesus. Hold on to Him. I will leave you with my favorite verse from this book, or from this chapter. It's verse 25, it says, whom am I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you will make us, you will make us great throughout the house. You will make us more faithful throughout the house. Help us to know what to do throughout the house. But mostly and more importantly, help us to look at the cross. Help us to, to gaze at the cross so that we can trust that you will not give up on us, that you will not walk away, that you will not let go of our hands. Father, we thank you that we are saved by grace. We thank you that we are saved, that we are brought back close to you. Help us to continue to grow in grace. We pray all this in the name of Christ. Amen.